Hey guys, welcome to The Passive Hang, a conversation featuring movement practitioners, sharing their stories and insights from practice. On today's episode, I sit down with Oliver Crossley, who is the yogic physio. Hope you guys enjoy. My name's Fayon. Here we go. Thanks, guys. Welcome back to another episode of The Passive Hang. Really excited today. I've got another awesome guest on the podcast. His name is Oliver Crossley, and he is the the yogic physio, which I think is a really kick-ass name. Um, you know, when I saw that, it really jumped out at me because, yeah, I haven't. Um, I think that intersection between actually being a physiotherapist and engaging in physical pra- practices um, is sometimes a rare one, uh, and you know, it makes a lot of sense because it it's all to do with body work. So, really happy to have Oliver on uh, and find out a bit more about his story. Hi, Oliver man thanks man (laughs) thanks for having me on yeah yeah it's been um really excited so yeah um when i jump on um his website you know oliver tells us that he's a physio a yoga teacher meditation teacher you know all, all rolled into one and so there's a lot going in there but um I guess I just wanted to ask you first, Oliver, maybe just to give a bit of an intro about yourself and just uh, let us know about, you know, your whole personal journey that's taken you up to this really interesting point. Thanks, man. Yeah, so my the, what, the physio stuff, that, that pays the bills. Mm-hmm. Um, about a couple of years out now from graduating um, up from James Cook Uni. And what got me into physiotherapy in the first place was a foray into yoga. Um, my whole introspective journey started like uh, the year after I left high school. I, um, I spent some time in India on a volunteering project I thought would be cool to do. Uh, and I ended up in a Tibetan monastery and got really fascinated by uh, Buddhism and, and just meditative practice and the variety of them. And I dropped into a yoga class and, as those two interests grew, I, I ended up changing degrees and got really into physiotherapy and wanted to learn more and become more literate in the science and um, empirical research into what, what was happening and what we were doing because I thought that was important. Um, and since I've gone through, evolved with the practices and, and taught more and more, I've found that really important because in a lot of our traditions, be it movement practice, yoga practice, or different meditative traditions, there's there's a lot of unhelpful beliefs and dogma, like any human um, mm. endeavor, that clouds it. And um, so I've I've found myself in this position where I'm trying to bring, yeah, just bring a sense of critical thinking and. Um, anti-dogmatism i guess to everything i do which is trying to blend the world of yoga meditation and movement into uh physio because i believe when people come in for an injury or a problem or pain Hmm. they're best fixed if i want to use that word by the stuff that you do to um to train anyway Hmm. Hmm. i think that's um it's really interesting how you've outlined it right there like this um this sort of opposition between sometimes these long-held dogmas and and beliefs and they get passed down from teacher to teacher right um versus Mm -hmm. this more 
recent or modern approach with empirical science, which, you know, sometimes also has its own pitfalls as well. You know, if you can, you could probably label that sometimes as having its own dogmas and beliefs, right? Um, Definitely, man. Yeah. So navigating all of that landscape, you know, I think it's tricky for a lot of people, but, you know, probably even more so for you when you're really, you know, you sit right in the middle of it. So yeah. How, how do you sort of nav- navigate your way between the two? Very, I find it very challenging, man. Um, I was just having a discussion with a colleague last week who runs a yoga based practice in Perth and talking about how our experience has been difficult with our teachers because sometimes our teachers and our fellow practitioners in the yoga world bring a lot of, um, uh, for want of a better word, without sounding too derogatory, woo-woo to, to, to the, mm. their explanation of what's happening, whereas we seek more critical, um, in, uh, empirical as much as possible view. But I still, I still always come back to the question of that's guiding me still. I think it's quite, it's reasonably infallible as where might I be wrong? And mm. that assumption of like the null hypothesis in science is really important. So going rather than trying to prove myself right, it's just about asking better questions and that guides the process. And generally it's questions about where I might have not seen something, where I might have been ignorant or where my culture or my school or practice or whatever might have been ignorant of something and trying to look at those blind spots as best as possible, given mm. that we are inherently subjective um, things like yeah Mm. um this is really interesting because you know there's the saying trust in the process so (laughs) you know when you enter into the tutelage of a let's say like a a teacher right i mean you're you're kind of going to the teacher for the seeking of learning and kind of like you know there's this concept of the beginner's mind as well of being like open to all these new concepts uh but then what you're talking about as well is, I guess, this this essence of critical thinking where you can't trust everything <laughs> that you're just being told as as well. So, yeah, how do you mm. bal- how do you balance the two? What you know, when when do you give all the trust of your no? I'm going to invest in this. I'm going to follow this process. And then when do you step back and go, oh, hang on, what I've been learning maybe isn't completely correct. I think yeah, really good point there, and I think like everyone um you just test and question things slowly so you sort of there's a story that i not to quote the buddha too much but there's a story from the buddha's life where he says you know when you're given something or given a teaching or a practice you like a jeweler who's just been given what might be gold you test it look at it observe it uh, and only take it or, or receive it from the person when you know it is what it is and so something that I have through my Zen practice coming down here to the Gold Coast to learn and live near my Zen teacher is this idea and that tradition of not faith, blind faith, as is common in many religious traditions, but faith born of experience mm-hmm. and experience slowly unveiled to you by a skillful teacher. Mm-hmm. So um, as I go through, I trust more and more the process, but still never lose that critical mind because it's the questioning mind that wakes us up, uh, he has told me. Um, and, in, and that beginner's mind, I think, ties in 
quite closely and is works well with that question where might I be wrong uh, it's to sit there and because it always means that I mean without you have to limit it sometimes because thinking process of itself um, in meditative practice eventually has to be let go mm. and you have to just rest in your experience but uh, off uh, on the journey to that state um, is is lots of questioning and contemplating mm-hmm. yeah it, um, you raise the interesting point about that that thinking mind and how i think sometimes that can be a barrier to just um to just acting and learning right like you can overthink things yeah. you can <laughs> you can really it can be fatal to decision making or good decision making i think at times where that thinking mind can really overcome you and create all these scenarios that may never happen right but at some point you just have to go no you know what i'm just going to do this and and then step forward yeah yeah and often it's just moving into action with awareness that ends up being the best move anyway because oh gosh uh, there's something that i mean things have both come from like met in this movement world there's a quote that Eden from Edo that still stays with me to this day from one of his videos where he says, you know, you chase after knowledge, chasing, chasing, chasing. And this is a common teaching in the Zen tradition. Mm. And then that knowledge can turn on you and freeze you up. Mm-hmm. And the very quick learning and discovery can paralyze itself. And mm. So there's got to be some kind of letting go into doing whatever you're doing is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's always... um. It's always such a tricky balance, right? You know, because you know, you, you, you seek this knowledge because you, you learn and that feeling of learning as well, sometimes it is validated by reaching out to grab that book or to watch that video, right? Um, mm-hmm. Rather than going and, I don't know, you see a muscle-up video and just doing a muscle-up <laughs> and figuring it out yourself. I guess in this age where there's an answer for everything as well, sometimes that self-ability to try and seek those answers you know you kind of give give away that um your, your own ability to just go no i'm gonna try and figure this out myself yeah exactly and that's where there's benefit in and it's something i find where i'm still have a faith in the yoga and zen traditions is that there's a there's a lineage there that extends longer than whatever teaching lineage there is in the gymnastics and movement world mm-hmm. and and just in that series of human to human relationships there's been working through a lot of these you know universal problems mm. um I've, I've got some trust in but also a knowledge that you know it's just other humans that did it and they're just as incolorable as me <laughs> yeah that's a really good point you know in the end sometimes you read all these readings these teachings as well and you forget that hey it was just like another guy that came across <laughs> Learn, learn, yeah. learn some stuff, learn some shit, and now he's written it down. <laughs> and, you know, it's good stuff, but also he was, he was probably like me, making a lot of mistakes. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, there's an imperfect world that we live in. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this is really cool stuff. Um, I kind of raced ahead, but, uh, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, earlier on you got involved. Um, did you say you went? overseas to tibet or india and that's where you get exposed yeah, to Buddhism. Yeah. yeah i guess so what happened there because that's just that's not normally a normal thing you know when you're kind of a 
a younger guy to to go over and then seek that out oh man i still have no idea why i did it mm. i i was at a high school where there was like a gap year program where canadian kids would come over i mm. did high school in darwin in the northern territory mm-hmm. australia and um we had like majority indigenous boarding um, mm. and so there was lots of like indigenous culture around us and and it was a fun place for people from Canada or the US to come and hang out. And so they were like, well, you can do this thing in other countries. You can go to England, you can go to Vanuatu. And they showed me the brochure. And I looked at this picture of this lady uh, or young young girl, and she was standing on top of this concrete building with like mountains in the background. It was a bit cliche, but there's a blackboard there, and she's teaching them English, little monks and nuns on the ground. And I went, that looks uncomfortable. But I and I don't know why, but I really want to do that. And so, like, I spent some time staying in Darwin, working on some pearling boats to rack up some cash to go. Mm-hmm. And then I spent the later half of 2011 living in uh, just outside of Darunshala, or about two hours out, which is the town that the Dalai Lama lives in. Mm-hmm. And, um, and yeah, wow. I, before I went, I was like, I really need to be culturally sensitive. I should figure out what their world's about before I go. Mm-hmm. And so my auntie of sorts, who lives in Sydney, um, I'm still very grateful to her to this day. She she was like, oh, here's this book because she's really into Tibetan Buddhism. Mm-hmm. And she told me to buy the Tibetan book of Living and Dying by Sogyal Rinpoche. And I started reading that on the curling boats and I had this sort of awakening to cliche word but i had this moment of like oh what like how is it how did i not read this stuff when i was like four or five like how is it not talking when i learned the dishes or the alphabet it was like there is suffering inherent to existence and if you do this you yeah i have to i have to laugh because you know the the book of life and death to you know hearing that uh, teaching that to a four four or five year old it sounds like a very novel novel concept (laughs) <laughs> probably probably wouldn't work now that I think about it but I felt this need of like it was like god like I should have known this all along like mm. but still I was only 17 so like I, like I look back and I'm like man you had plenty of time um you were lucky to come across it then and then I just became enthralled by these ideas that were coming out of these different Tibetan Buddhist schools and living in this monastery I had so many cool opportunities to listen to speakers like the mm. Dalai Lama himself, among thousands of other people. Mm. <laughs> and then particularly this one lady, Tenzin Palmo, who's an English lady who has sort of revived the Tibetan yogini tradition, female mm-hmm. Buddhist practice. And she spent 12 years in a cave. Um, so her famous book, the book about her says, and, and that's sort of whole process. Um, yeah, I just, uh, I became fascinated with it all and started sitting, um, not very successfully, five times <laughs> at a time. But um, I think it, it, it's, it planted some deep seeds. And I guess what I what comes from Zen now, these like questions without direct answers, these koans um, that sort of throw you into that beginner's mind or into that open mm-hmm. state. Um, you know, things like, oh, what am I really trying to do here? And I guess we all start to ask this, like if we're introspective enough, like what am I doing? What is it? What is it? Is it aligning with my values? Like, um, you know, the examined life is, is probably one more worth living, I guess. I find this amazing, you know, like you were this young kid in Darwin who saw a, 
who saw a picture and kind of made you feel uncomfortable but curious enough to embark on this journey to go learn from people like the Dalai Lama. Like, <laughs> I guess, do you identify with this curious nature where you kind of all, are always asking questions? Oh, definitely. It's, it's actually getting really, um, it's something I have to temper recently because I have this kind of ongoing sort of thirst to know it all. Um, mm. I've got Hermione Granger problem um, <laughs> where I'm just kind of like, I have to read everything um because i just i really like that feeling of the bird's eye view where even though there's obvious limitations that will always hold me back from like any other human from knowing everything um i'm still gonna try (laughs) Mm. and like especially when it comes to knowledge that helps better frame um our gosh how do i train this well better frame our existence and how to create meaning from it and help mm-hmm. each other in that. Um, I, anything around that seems to be fascinating. So like recently I'm, just, I'm enthralled by like philosophy of science and trying to understand how science itself sort of figures itself out. Um, mm. which I didn't even know was a thing. <laughs> <laughs> so you you started getting into these like I guess introspective practices and then did you start so your first sort of physical practice that was that was yoga yeah I guess so I like every kid like Aussie kid I tried to do team sports but I just never felt good at it and Mm. felt like I never got to a point of that self-efficacy where you kind of believed in yourself but Mm. always felt some part but then something about yoga just gave me the sense of like um I'm not I'm not like, it's not like here's the participation award, feel good about yourself, but it was like, this is a challenge, but I can see the path of development. And I had these little moments of like, oh, I've got that, I've got that, I've got that, much like in movement practice where you work on something, mm-hmm. QDR, push up, and, you know, and you're like, God, this is like intense or impossible, but then slowly, slowly it becomes possible. And that process just, it really built up a, a, a sense of self-efficacy that I never had before mm. but really not really a confident kid at all mm. um and then it just but yeah it helped bring out that which was um, still very grateful for and, it, and when i got back to australia that sort of introspective process it's interesting that i couldn't find a sitting teacher over there a meditation teacher mm-hmm. um one of my i still sort of get annoyed at myself for doing this but like on the last day of living in this monastery, which was one of the more famous Tibetan monasteries in India, mm-hmm. run by quite a famous Rinpoche, but I, I went up to the abbot and was like, I've been trying to ask someone to teach me meditation. Could you teach me and my friend Daniel, the other teacher there from Canada, uh, meditation? And he was like, oh, no, no, none of you like people ever want to learn, but okay, cool. Because um, <laughs> there'd been many, plenty of volunteers before. Many <laughs> white people like, so whatever, okay, if you guys want to. So that afternoon, we went up to his room and we sat down, right over, okay. Uh, it's like, okay, so find a comfortable position, you do all the basics, get a cushion, close your eyes, and keep them open, and then you follow your breath and you count every exhale that goes out. Okay, one, next breath, two. And we counted to seven, and then he's like, did you keep concentration? I'm like, yeah, no, no, I did not. <laughs> he's like, okay, start again at one. And I was like, what, really? Here's me, like like many Westerners, like many meditation students, yoga students, even movement, 
we jump too far ahead and want to do the cool thing and not realizing that there's a lot of ba- basic mm. groundwork that's required. Mm. And so I kind of walked out of that room feeling a bit dismayed going, surely there's more to this than counting my breath for seven. But years later, multiple Vipassana retreats and then now I've realized that's all there is to it. <laughs> and um, if you've got the faith for it, it'll eventually cut through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's that, it's that patience, right, to just keep on chipping away, keeping consistent at the practice, right, until you really start to feel it, right? I guess that's, um, that's the part it, that's really hard, I think, at, at the start as well, which is like that trust the process concept because <clears throat> sometimes, you know, the, the feeling that you're seeking or the learning that you're seeking seems really unclear or almost like it's not happening and it's natural to question it even more sometimes at that initial initial hump that you have to get over to get to that first stage of competency and then after you you feel that that first ah this skill or whatever it is this trait is is coming then it's easier to then give your faith into that process because you're like oh okay like something's happening now yeah, man. I'm, and I look back and, and go like, wow, like how did I commit to this process? Because like a lot of us, I don't know, particularly me, I sort of suffer from that restlessness and that sort of um, sure, what do you call it? If you're not getting a quick short-term fix, then it's difficult to have that commitment to the process. And I think sometimes there's be it like some karmic connection, if I use that word, mm. or you find it kind of cool or motivating enough when you see senior practitioners that it hooks you in long enough to see that process evolve and then mm. once it starts it's kind of like the for me now the snowball's rolling down the hill mm. I'm never going to get um, it's too it's just yeah it's enriched life too much mm-hmm. um so maybe take us through from this initial yoga practice how has your movement journey been so far maybe you know touching on the physiotherapy work as well to where you are now. How has that transformed from then to now? Mm, good question. Um, very stop and start I am, I, like many people, I saw a video of the Portal circa 2013, 14, <laughs> I think yep. the end of 2013, and just went, oh, like, yes. And it was the same feeling I had when I read that Tibetan book of living and dying. It was like, this is, this is it. This seems fundamental. Mm. And so my parents got me a set of gymnastics rings for Christmas and I sort of messed around on them. Awesome. Ages. Uh, hurt myself. Did a couple of, like, just did skin chin-ups and stuff and hanging. I was mm. really excited about the whole hanging squat challenge. Tried to do that as best I could. And then... I was lucky to have some friends and people into it around me a little bit that helped guide that journey. I have a friend, David Diamore, who runs a gym in Cairns. It's really cool. Shout out first, or my first coach. I met him going up to a seminar with Steve Maxwell. Um, lucky enough to have him visit Cairns. And that was really cool because that dude is like still fit and healthy in his mid-60s and definitely beyond. So there's definitely there was value in learning from him. And then David got me on an initial gymnastic strength program. Um, and that, that was probably 2015, 16. And then I kept working for well, late 2016. 
and then that's when I sort of started to hook in a bit more towards the end of my physio um, degree because I wasn't able to fit in my yoga practice as much. So mm-hmm. I became quite obsessed with Ashtanga yoga, which um, for those who don't know, has quite long sequences and you add on to them posture by posture mm-hmm. um, as the teacher sees it as appropriate. And then you end up practicing these full series, which take up two hours. And gosh, it's awesome, but it's a lot of time. So I was mm-hmm. like, right, I need, I need to keep my body healthy and working but in like a shorter time space like i've got like <laughs> before i've got to go to a placement lecture so i was like i started doing these strength training routines um, skin the cats chin-ups ring ring base skills uh handstand work and and body weight lower body stuff and then mm-hmm. i came across um there was someone who i feel really lucky enough to call a close friend now john ewan mm. I got a program from him. I was lucky enough to fit into his very long wait list and get a spot. Mm-hmm. And he gave me a, an initial program and that just pushed the ball down the hill. I mm. loved it. Lots of bodyweight strength stuff. So I'm, I'm still working towards his beautiful touchdown dragon squat. <laughs> <laughs> God, it's magnificent. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah, and then after that, um, like cutting a long story short, I came came across Harry Williams, mm-hmm. who uh, Holistic Movement is a really good handstand coach, um, but he makes you work hard. And mm-hmm. I'm glad I committed to, I committed to, I think, two cycles with him mm-hmm. and learned a lot. And even still now, I've got a lot of my handstand practices based off a lot of what he taught me just through uh, distantly. Mm-hmm. And then, um, yeah, I moved down to the Gold Coast and came across a friend, Derek Skolnick, who's from America, and he, he did a lot of Edo's programming and went through that, like, intense sort of hell that is six hours a day of training for <laughs> those who are brave enough to commit to it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we just started hanging out. Like, he, he's got a pretty good one arm and we were doing ring skill work together. And, and ever since then, we just had like a once a week catch up where we do hand balancing or ring work. It was basically like straight on or bent arm. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, he's moved up to Brisbane now, so I'm just doing my own thing. But yeah, it's been very stop and start. And um, I think the movement world in Australia, as I'm sure you're seeing, is it's, it's just starting to sort of find its cultural permanence, maybe. It's starting mm. to blossom into something that's definable for those who haven't seen it before. Mm-hmm. Uh, watching it and being a distant part of it yeah i think definitely now there are certain individuals now shifting the culture through either their individual coaching or their making institutions or you know groups which um yeah defining it a little bit more to a wider audience which i think is been really exciting to watch you know because you know uh, like like you we we believe in this stuff we know that it's like it's good quality stuff right so um the more people that are able to access it i think the better oh yeah i want to make it like like as as universal as doing bicep curls in a gym like it Hmm. frustrates me when i go to my local like this afternoon i've got a bent arm day I'm going to go to my local snap fitness gym and I just watch people moving and exercising. And I'm like, you could be doing so much a fun mm. things and be probably better for your body. But mm. so hopefully we'll get it out. But um, I, I really like seeing what you're doing, man. It's just like, um, it's, it's really useful to sort of demystify and clear up a lot of those locomotion moves and 
um, make them, yeah, accessible for people. So thanks for putting those out. Ah, no worries. Yeah, just a, a bit of fun for me, but then also, you know, good good review of me uh, for for my practice as well. As I try and, like many others, try and find out what the hell is going on with all these you know crazy <laughs> videos where you see people moving in such a way, right? And you're like, what happened there? Um, like with a lot of these movements, I think you probably realize that as you get coaching, you know, the the devil is in the details, and that can really change oh, the whole. Yeah the whole experience once you yeah you find out something or someone points out something and you're like oh it's like that yep oh it's and like i was just thinking when you said to demystify low that thing it's like when you watch people do these floor work practices like odelia or john ewan it's like watching mozart play and then somehow you've got to figure out how to do scales from that and, and chords <laughs> and you're like god damn that's complex and we're all just sitting here going like how do i do that <laughs> so yeah it's, um, it's cool it's a cool deconstruction process yeah most definitely um you know with yeah uh, so you mentioned you know you've had experience getting teaching from a variety of, of different movement teachers, you know, um, which is really cool. And then I guess during this whole period, you were, you were studying physiotherapy, right? Like this was, um, uh, w w was this done in conjunction with each other? I guess. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much alongside. So I was, I got obsessed with Ashtanga about 2012, 2013, um, mm. left an economics degree, moved to Townsville where my parents were mm. and got into the program at JCU, James Cook Uni. And then because I, I was like, I want to become an Ashtanga teacher, but I knew like with humility that that was going to take like five, six years. So mm. I was like, well, let's do something in the process where, like I said in the beginning, I'm going to like kind of learn some science and get, get literate around the process of mm. physical well-being whatever that mm. is and then and then yeah luckily it just sort of held me in place long enough for other stuff to come in and and for me to learn a bigger broader perspective and mm. um and it kept yeah it kept me more open-minded i think and less dogmatic than i would have been if i just stayed in the yoga world mm. um which yeah whew, super grateful for now because there's been so many injuries and pains and that I, I i just would have probably been stuck with um and not known how to deal with and there's there's been a lot of cool evidence and ideas come out of physiotherapy and mm. the pain research world in the last 20 years that i wouldn't have got if i didn't do physio that have helped me greatly like mm. um and I mean, John Ewan, someone I have to thank for getting me across to that initially. Um, some more skeptical, open-minded European physios have done a lot of work on this. So it was, yeah, it was cool to come across a lot of that. And I, I did the physio con in conjunction from about 2013 to 2018 when I graduated. Yeah. Um, maybe could you riff a little bit on some ideas that maybe you came across through your formal yeah. tra training, like in, in physio versus, you know, uh, say learning it more informally via John or via like the, your experience with the movement culture? 
So the movement culture is in like so much ahead of its game compared to physio, um, particularly physio in, in the university context, unfortunately in codifying a degree and getting it accredited, mm. most of the knowledge as is with most health degrees, it's a bit outdated. Um, they try to update it and there were glimpses, but so as I was trying to learn more and going, right, I'm really interested in musculoskeletal physio, which is what most people think of when they think of a physio mm. going to see someone for an injury. I uh, chatting with John and coming across people like Lars Ava Marie, uh, a, a Swedish, no, sorry, a Dutch physio, um, mm-hmm. who's done a lot of sort of sign, not popularizing, but he's sort of like a, a loud a speaker for the lesser or quieter voices in physio science and pain science. And just this idea that an injury or a pain or a problem isn't a permanent life sentence and Mm. that the body is not a decaying, you know, once you've done it, then you've got it forever kind of structure. It's, you know, you watch, I started to watch people like John do helix squats and, and touchdowns and, and watch like, one of my friends from the online movement uni, um, Amir Zadinajad, do like a, a sissy squat below deficit and just explode my little physio mind of going, those knees are over toes. <laughs> my gosh, his patellofemoral joints. And it's like, they're fine, but why? But how? And so you start thinking, gosh, I'm like, there's something missing here. Mm. So I, I came across other voices um, through John and, and that world, Greg Lehman, um, who's still a, a shining light in that world who I still listen to a lot. Um, and then from there, it just kind of opened up into like an Alice in Wonderland moment where you go through the rabbit hole and, and it's like, oh. and, and since then I've, I've, I've just become enthralled by it all and mm. have been working on some, some course material actually to sort of provide to back to the world to make it more accessible. Um, yeah, um, I could probably talk more, but I'll, I'll just end up ranting. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Um, you know, how, how you mentioned that, I guess it's always going to be a struggle with, you know, formal education um, being really up to date with all the knowledge that is that is coming out there. Um, I, I guess, you know, when there's evidence such as like you see someone perform like a deficit sissy squat um, and it goes against the book, but you, you've seen that person do that and, <laughs> and, and he looks stronger than probably anybody that, you know, right? That oh yeah, <laughs> that's probably evidence enough to go like, hey, what what is actually going on there? Like that guy looks like he's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like he's more than fine. Like he's thriving, and like I'm looking at people around me and going, hmm. And it's like, and this is where, as much as I'm a fan of evidence based practice, I'm enthralled by the interaction between those who sort of are ahead, let's say, of the evidence because mm. they sort of have used themselves as micro subjects and tested the methods on themselves and are the data. Like they're, they're the walking kind of proved hypothesis of the body's resilient and adaptable. Mm. Um, and then slowly we're catching up to it, I guess. Yeah, so I noticed on your page you know, you ha- you've been posting a lot of research reviews, which I think is, mm. has been really interesting. Um, from your findings from these reviews, do they confirm or go against like your direct experience that you've got from maybe like your personal practice or from teaching and guiding others what you are seeing? Yeah, good question. So that's a tricky thing. Um, 
with any practitioner looking at the evidence and this idea of evidence-based practice, um, evidence, I think, depending on your sort of, this is why I'm trying to look into philosophy of science a bit more to make sense of it all. But depending on your perspective, I generally go with like the proof is in the pudding. So if there's enough data evidence to go like, right, you're wrong. I'm going to be like, yeah, okay, I'm wrong. Um, like I said, I'm always trying to ask that question of where might I be not considering something. And so most of the time I'm, I'm, it, it confirms my bias um, because I just, I mean, it's self-selected papers. So I'm trying to get info out there for papers <laughs> that have changed my mind a while ago. Yep. But for example, like more recently I read a study that was just about mobility and stretching. Um, probably not the best study quality wise, but you know, it was saying that passive stretching was actually pretty good and showed like up to 20% increases in range of motion. Mm. Um, granted they held these stretches for a bloody long time, like five minutes per muscle group. But mm. I was like, Oh, okay. So that sort of changed my mind because there's been a pendulum swing in the culture particularly in physio um, and obviously in the movement world, to, depending on who you talk to, that active mobility and, you know, loaded progressive stretching, strength-based, like, you know, range of motion increasing work trumps all others. So, you know, rather than sitting there and doing like a forward fold, you're going to do a Jefferson curl or <clears throat> um, you're going to do a loaded good morning rather than like a yoga pose. And And I was swinging more to that myself. But I think there's always this nuanced um, capacity that's required to make sense of, of all of this and just of the world, really. Um, dynamic systems theory generally means that things aren't as linear or as uh, causative as you'd like them to be. So this and a more emergent thinking process is required to make sense of ourselves and our bodies. I mean, it goes back to the, what we were talking about before, which is like what starts to become accepted dogma. And then it's just yeah. like, okay, like just do Jefferson kill because that's like the best forward fold. Right. Um, but is, yeah. it always, is it always the best for all situations and for all people? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's for you to decide or to find out yourself. Yeah, that's it. And, and that personal experience and, and, always, I guess, some input and guidance from a, a practitioner or someone who's done more than you, you know, like in the Zen world, they're like, you know, you can, there's this whole, ah, oh, I can't be a teacher unless I'm enlightened. And it's like, well, have you practiced longer than other people? Yeah. Okay. Then maybe, you know, you've got something to share. And I mm. think that, that, uh, that sort of principle works well in any system. So in the movement world, most of my coaches, I mean, some of them have been a little bit further along the way. Some of them have been, particularly in John's case, um, mm. a long, long way away. Um, mm. You know, the master on top of the mountain kind of vibe. But yeah, it's it's um it's it's good to sort of keep that like open questioning process, which is all I'm trying to do. Like I'm not going like this research trumps your personal experience, but it's just like, Hey, we're inviting you to a broader perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I love that, that you're sort of stoking the discussion with pre presenting these, um, these research papers as well, because I think, you know, it, it invites deeper thought into like, okay, what, what are we doing here? Yeah, exactly, man. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, just t touching on this, um, whole pain injury that sort of thing uh that, that you mentioned you know in, mm. in this physical practice that we're doing you know sometimes people doing it a lot you know as you mentioned people doing the edo stuff up to like six hours per day that sort of stuff i guess that at some point you know we're probably going to face 
some sort of injury, you know, whether it be minor, chronic, acute, that sort of thing, I guess. In in these situations, what's your advice on how to approach such a situation? Because, you know, coming from the movement culture, I remember one video, which I saw, I don't know if you've seen it, like Johnny Sapinoso, he like tore his pec, he's tore his pec, you know, doing this reverse meat hook thing or something. And then he was like, (laughs) jump straight back into it, you know, like that day doing all this thing. And I was like, I mean, that still blows my mind, but yeah, I guess what's your opinion on, on that sort of stuff or I guess in injury management in general? Yeah, I was greatly influenced by that very same video and it, and it got me, I'm grateful I came across it actually because a lot of the research has been showing that, you know, early return to movement as much as possible, as quick as possible sort of helps um, or not sort of helps is crucial to rehabilitation to returning to your best and going beyond that like in the case of hamstring strains in football soccer like it's really well known now that like as soon as you get back to some kind of hamstring training you're gonna get back on the field faster Mm. so um there's wisdom in that sort of um that uh i don't know the the old farmers sort of um i don't know how to word it but yeah there's wisdom in that in that practical knowledge rather than up in the high horse physio going, Oh, you shouldn't be doing that. You should let it heal or you should get surgery. And it's like, it's not always the case. And so I've been like going, why, why does that happen? How does that happen? And looking into it a lot more, I've been very um, lucky to come across some researchers like Lorimer Mosley, uh, his, his colleague, David Butler, gosh, um, Derek Griffin, and, and, a, and a whole slew of other physio lecturers and practitioners that have, have shown us that when we injure ourselves or when we feel pain, we need to reappraise that process because we've made a, an assumption, a, log, a logical assumption that when I feel pain, that is a direct indicator of damage um, or a problem in the body, mm. uh, in the tissue, the issues in the tissue because of this um, and it, and we can blame interestingly Rene Descartes for this because he in the 16th century wrote mm. this book where he assumed that you know when your foot is near the fire some element of that fire gets shot along a tube along this nerve up to the brain that hits a bell and he literally like described it in those kind of words so it was a very cause and effect to linear process mm-hmm. whereas what we've come to discover through over like years and thousands and thousands of papers and research is is that mm, not not quite the case pain is more often than not occurring with no tissue damage or you can have people you know on on the flip side with incredible amounts of tissue damage and no pain mm. um in this course I'm developing, I show people who are, you know, in Thailand self-mutilating with sticks and stuff at the vegetarian festival. Uh, I mean, there's, there's stories of um, people getting nails through their heads, through their feet and, and not reporting any pain or reporting quite a lot of pain and they ended up just grazing them. And so when it comes to the movement world, um, what it, the first thing is to go, right, pain doesn't always mean damage it's more an indicator of a threatened nervous system. Mm. And so then that guides our process of injury prevention, let's say, or training um, formulation, periodization of going, how can the nervous system feel threatened? What does that? And it's like, well, a whole range of stuff, you know, your psycho emotional state, 
mm-hmm. your sleep, your nutrition, your, uh, your job, your relationships, and the list goes on. And so we come to something, the work of a wonderful man called George Engel from 1972 of the biopsychosocial model, which many people would have heard of, um, which is a brilliant model that sort of brings together this idea that it's not just the bio, the issue is not just in the tissue, even though we are you know, fundamentally just biological creatures. The psycho and sociological aspects are crucial to our understanding of how we feel and how we get pain and injury mm. because more, more often than not, um, I mean, we're social beings, right? Like we evolved in tribes and groups. And so of course that's going to have a big impact on our existence and well being. And so, I mean, there's studies from Finland that when, you know, they had a massive, um, massive economic crash, I think it was in the nineties, this 10 year study, 10 year or 10 city back study. They found that, you know, work cover chronic low back pain rates went through the roof mm. just because people were out of jobs and they'd felt their social meaning was interrupted or affected. So uh, getting those two con- concepts across first are key, and then you can start to periodize a lot better. Yeah, I guess, you know, if you're a practitioner and this happens to you though, uh, you know, knowing all this sort of stuff is all well and good, but, you know, you sometimes you get this internal narrative as well, right? Like you're, it, it hurts. Like there's a very powerful physical or perception of sensation that you that you have, which goes, you know, like... Uh, I've just broken my wrist or something like that. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, something I guess, very apparent. How can you approach uh, that in your mind when, you know, there's, there's one thing about sort of knowing about these models and going, oh, maybe it's just my mind, all this sort of thing, and then going, oh, okay, like maybe I am going to be okay and actually believing that and then working towards a process that's going to heal that. Um, yeah, what? Maybe can you comment a little bit about For Sure, that? yeah. So the research has comments quite well on this. Um, I'm just trying to think of the author who started a lot of this. He comes from America as a psychologist, but we look at sort of the framing of the experience first. Mm. So if we look at someone like Johnny Saponosa when he tore his pec, like literally ripped it off the bone, he framed it from a, from a point of view of resilience and and like adaptive coping Mm. where he sort of went, okay, my, my, my existence um, and meaning isn't threatened by this greatly. Mm. I have ways to adapt and temper this experience and, and go back to what I'm doing. Um, And obviously like the pain sensation is as real for him as it is for you or me. Mm. And he sort of slowly graded himself back into it. I mean, controversially at a faster rate than most people would expect or advise, but mm. you know, he's moving well. So he's the living example of it. Granted, he's probably his training. Most people's training history is a big factor in their injury risk mm. and rehab, because if you've been, you know, doing gymnastics strength training for 10 years or running for 10 years, you're going to rehab a lot better or differently than someone who's run, run for three months or mm. done, just got their first set of rings. So Something like on the converse, I have an experience like this where I'm the opposite end of Johnny. Where in 2015, I hurt my wrist quite bad just through overload during yoga, a lot of push, push, push movements, and probably not eating that well or as much as I needed. And, and just this, I don't know, just uni stress and life stress. And ended up going to a hand therapist. I, I was quite, you know, because 
I was a physio student needing to use my hands a lot and a yoga teacher and practitioner. My whole existence was dependent on my capacity to put pressure through my hands mostly, mm. right? Like a lot of my meaning and, and well-being was dependent on that. And so I was quite threatened and I was a bit more of a vulnerable uh, coper um, and I not as much resilience there. And so I catastrophized quite a bit. And when I, when you frame the the experience of pain or injury from a from a very heightened threat perception, it can tend to beget more pain than you would if you had a different way of framing it. And that's a very complex process that's dependent on a wide range of factors. So it's um you know it's not something that's your own responsibility. It's very con- context dependent and injury dependent. Like you know, car crash is different to a bit of rotator cuff pain. And so what happened was I went to this hand therapist. They were like, you probably ruptured your sac- uh, scaphoelunate ligament between two of the carpal bones. Um, this might require surgery, like just blah, blah, catastrophize, catastrophize. Mm. Many people have heard this before. And I went, huh. So I ended up getting an x-ray, long uh, ligament wasn't ruptured, but my good hand, it was ruptured. There you go. Okay. First clue on the journey that I might be wrong and what they're telling me might be wrong. Wait, so the, opposite, then- the opposite hand was... The opposite. So my right hand still to this day, bloody good. Love it. It's so reliable. It's got Mm. a ruptured ligament between my scaphoid bone and my lunate bone. (laughs) Uh, T structure. It's gone. And you didn't have the pain on that one. The other one you thought was broken. Yep. Left hand. And it's because, which is another key part, my right arm was just stronger. It had more capacity to handle higher loads. Mm. And what was I putting myself through? Higher loads. So eventually, long story short, paid for an MRI. I was a uni student that hurts. I go to the only local sport doctor in the region and I still remember what he said. He's like, mm, mate, clear as dog's balls. There's nothing much going on here. So you can probably start handstanding again. So here's <laughs> someone with quite a lot of reputation and clout. And like, he's the doctor for the Cowboys rugby club, rugby league club. And I go, okay, I trust this guy. And, and boom, I try handstanding that week, slowly progress my way back into it. And I haven't had wrist pain really of any consequence since. That, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's, so it's really, it comes back to how you frame your experience and, mm. and what contexts are affecting, what contextual factors are affecting that. Um, and as much as possible getting a, and this is where a good physio comes in. And this is where I try and reframe my job rather than the fixer. I am the, the, um, interactive coach that de-threatens your experience and shows you a way out of how you think it's going to go, which is usually quite catastrophic and and bad. Like my world's falling apart, my back hurts, blah, blah, blah. Uh, But it can be reframed and guided in a much more positive way. Because that was critical for you to get back into it, right? You found this guy and you trusted him and he gave you the belief that it was going to be okay to start loading the wrist again. Exactly. And he, and he was a sports doctor who was looking at something structural and it was all a very structural narrative from the first place. So mm. I was like, as much as I was stuck in that paradigm, he used that very paradigm to lift me out of it. Whether knowingly or unknowingly, I don't know. Mm. He probably knew his stuff. He definitely does still. He's a great and practitioner. I, I think that's where the key uh, is where if you've invested in like yourself into doing like a, a physiotherapy course and you have that title, then it gives that permission in a lot of people's mind or a wider group of, um, you know, gem pop to then go, oh, okay, like I can really trust into this guy. Also maybe what you're guiding them on, right. Is 
isn't anything that you learnt from your course at all. Mm, quite often, I mean, aside from one really good mentor, um, uh, the shoulder lady, Helen, at my uni, everything else was crap. <laughs> <laughs> it was so bad. Um, um, it was, but that's like not unique to JCU at all. Mm. It's just every uni. Mm. So, you know, there's no shortage of um, doctors, osteos, chiros, that sort of thing. Um, you know, if something, if something does happen to you, like how do you find the good practitioner who may help you heal? How do you separate the good from the bad? Mm, I think like with a good coach, it's a very similar journey. You watch, unfortunately you have less time to make the decision generally when you're injured or in pain, because it's more of a short term immediate need as opposed to the need to want to muscle up or a middle split. (laughs) You can kind of look and observe and go, who's the best coach. Whereas with, I think generally we go to who we trust first and how we develop or gain that or have that trust in the first place is different Mm -hmm. for everyone. But in my immediate location, I look around and go, well, who works with the people I work with who I think it's very important, first of all, to know the world that people live in. So one of my old mentors, he's, he's right into triathlon and running and running is his world. And so he, he, he always sees runners and he, and he always told me he never tells a runner to stop running when they hurt themselves, Mm. which is what everyone tells them. And so if I'm getting injured or if anyone else is, I, I get, I urge you to seek the practitioner that knows your world, mm. that knows powerlifting, that knows movement, that knows dance, yoga, whatever it is, yeah. because they're first, they're going to be able to better do the most crucial part of the rehab journey, which is listen and empathize. Mm, mm, mm. I, I love that. I love that. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. And you'd be able to relate a lot more to them as well because i've walked into the room as well sometimes where, uh, when i've been injured and then trying to explain like what the hell i've been doing right it's like yeah. you know, even the even the term yeah i was like doing skin the cats or something it's met with sometimes just a blank look it's just like oh my like, god yeah they what, look at you and go, that? why would you do that <laughs> <laughs> yeah so it is um that 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 makes a lot of sense um uh i guess jumping across Going back to, you know, your experience with yoga and um, maybe more primarily meditation, um, you know, as as an awareness practice or introspection practice. Um, Mm. And I see this as, you know, a common thread with a lot of practitioners. Maybe it's the the way that when we're exposed to it, you know, via Ido or or whoever as well, you know, who's very much a, a philosopher as well and asking a lot of interesting questions or posing a lot of interesting questions to, to a lot of us. Um, yeah. I mean, how do you see the relationship between, you know, the body, the mind and the spirit? Mm, good question. I, I see yoga is still providing something quite valuable and it's why I still remain enmeshed in that practice. Um, because it it it's communicating something quite skillfully if it's done well. It, like that tradition has been around for a bloody long time. Like we trace most of our texts back of physical yoga, at least, you know, within the last sort of five to 500 to a thousand years. And the mm. same message has been that there's a fundamental problem in, in human awareness and how it frames its existence mm. uh, and or how it frames self. And then that begets more suffering, mm. um, unnecessary suffering, and 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 generally projects that help ends up projecting that suffering onto others and creating a potentially a world that's probably less fun to live in. So, 
through that process of trying to wake up to what our true self um, without sounding too cliched really is, which Mm. isn't that fancy. It's just that who you think you are is not who you really are because you, you like most of our thinking process Mm. are trying to create a, a idea of constancy and, um, and rigidity in something that is always and inherently very flowing, ever changing and dynamic. Mm-hmm. And so if you don't align yourself with that ever flowing dynamic nature, you're going to make poor decisions and have poor results. And so this system has evolved where it goes, right. And it, there's as many varieties as there are vegetables, but most of them communicate the same thing that, that you've got an ignorance of who you are as a primary problem and from that ignorance you have this tendency towards excessive craving and excessive uh, aversion to your own experience Mm -hmm. whereas if you were more fluid you probably would be less averse to things that were slightly uncomfortable and more and less craving for things because you're basically just comfortable in things as they are in your own existence Mm -hmm. um and then from that, there's these practices that evolve that try and clear up and work through the patterns of conditioning uh, that exist in our physical bodies, our emotional bodies, and our sort of mental bodies, let's say. Uh, and this is where the, the threefold well-known parts of yoga, which is posture, breathing, meditation, come in. Mm. Uh, it was the first thing I got taught on my, medita- on my yoga teacher training course from a wonderful teacher from Australia called Gregor Mayo and his wife, Monica Gauchi, mm-hmm. he said that the system really make, comes in from that and it goes, right, let's, let's use some practices that help bring awareness to the patterns that exist in the body, to mm-hmm. the patterns that exist in the breath and emotional sphere, and to the patterns that exist in your own thinking and framing processes. And try and first just turn on the light in the room see how much Lego scattered everywhere and then try and clean it up. <laughs> Cause I like, I make this sort of like metaphor, like, I don't know, metaphor, I guess it's like when you walk around in a dark room and there's Lego all over the floor, e.g. Mm. bad habits, it like fucking hurts, but then you don't really know why it hurts and you can't see why it hurts. And then it's not until you turn the light inward and pay attention that mm. you can go, Oh, there's that process. Oh yeah. I tend to frame things that way. Oh yeah. Mm. My hips tight. Oh yeah, I tend to breathe really fast when I'm like mildly like perceiving threat when I could just slow it down a bit mm. and it goes on from there. Yeah, this is a really interesting perspective. Um, yeah, uh, you know, for I guess from this sort of start, uh, side of how you uh, approach this introspection or this, this, this awareness um, and I know that especially coming from yoga, you know, that's very integrated with the teaching, right? It's not only the physical yep. practice, but, you know, there's always stuff around uh, with the breath, with, you know, integrating the breath with the physical practice. But then now what you're talking there with um, more holistic, you know, awareness of the mind, mm-hmm. I guess coming from a more physical practice perspective, uh, if someone was investing heavily just say in the, in the physical you know mm. what, what's something that you would recommend that somebody could try so that from these learnings that you're gaining a lot of benefit from um could engage in let's say you know doing locomotion or movement practice is that something mm. that can cross over really well um yeah maybe if you could riff a little bit on that yeah for sure so this is where like uh like another colleague of mine scott 
um, Scott White, who's over in Perth with Inner Focus Yoga, IF Physio on Instagram, really cool to follow. We both talk about like, well, what is it in the physical practice that distinguishes yoga from the rest? And it's like, mm. Sometimes it's not so much what everyone thinks, which is the down dog or the pose itself. Mm. What I've begun to realize is a lot of the pose sequences and, and practices have differed a lot throughout the years. Like he has made some efforts to unveil some di- like texts and or not unveil them, but bring them to popular awareness of what yogis did even just 200 years ago in Southern India. And a lot of them were doing locomotive drills. Mm. And so I guess it comes back to, um, like anything, it's just bringing a sense of clear intent uh, to what you're doing. So most of the time people are bringing an intent to their movement or training practice of like cultivating some faculty of generally strength or uh, mobility. And there's a, there's an effortful process there that um, often takes our attention away from the inner experience. Mm. Um, and, and I guess what yoga practice could bring or what it could offer, um, even for someone without even changing their physical practice in terms of what it looks like would be to just bring a sense of internal awareness in, um, and a little bit of breath control, which this is where, like, again, there's no clear distinctions There's often lots of overlap overlappings you'll find a lot of movement practitioners that do tune their breath into their practice that do Mm. pay attention to sensations and so what you should do is first start by going right i'm going to slow my breath down and breathe in and out through my nose i'm trying to avoid mouth breathing and and see if i can notice the interaction between my sense of effort difficulty and the pace and length of my breath and then from there, you can start to see what happens to your like inner somatic experience. And, and you can notice the patterns, particularly with slower movements or as you start to close down your practice and maybe sit or breathe for a while, you can, which I always advise to downregulate after anything, even if mm. you're just doing deadlifts, is to sit and pay attention to the sensations that arise and notice patterns of aversion and attraction. Um, because we all have them and like we, we all, I mean, it's quite a universal phenomenon to sit there and go, right, well, what am I noticing myself quite like ugh, averse to? And what am I getting really like, what am I wanting craving? Because mm. if we can bring awareness to, as I said, initially the breath and then the sensations following that, you can start to make a practice that uh, is less effortful. So you probably have less physical load and potentially achieve more, um, mm. uh, or get, you know, get more time in or whatever, more just like, um, apparent gross things. But then on the, on the more inner level, you can maybe start to unwind some unhelpful behavior patterns. Um, mm. because most of our I conjecture, most of our unhelpful habits arise out of that simple process of just wanting what you can't get and trying to get rid of what you don't want um mm. and a tempering uh or growing of equanimity is is key uh, to to overcoming that um, i hope yeah does that make sense no it, it really does i i like how you said that you know with these um you know let's take it for strength right it involves a lot of effort and then sometimes that that feeling of of effort and stepping into it can can cloud somewhat the the awareness or i mean it's yeah not to, big time. yeah or it's not to say that you can't be like aware and put in effort right but maybe just because that physical sensation is so strong that mm. um 
uh, that you can just start becoming that automated machine, right? Because you're like, oh, I just do that and try and bust out a hundred kilogram squat. Um, but to say a step back and then pay attention and then do it again, you know, you, you can still do it, but then that experience changes because you're just paying a little bit more attention. Yeah, exactly. And like, I've, I've had interesting discussions with my friend Derek about this because he reckons that, you know, unless you're, and if it, if it, if the pose or the position looks good or you're doing it easily, it's not hard enough and you're not getting <laughs> the gain sort of thing. And I think you had a similar discussion with some, uh, I always pronounce his name wrong, but Yo Chim or Chim Hildeson. Um, <laughs> yeah. That was really good. But yeah, he, like, so, I mean, often through a strength practice, yeah, you'll be like, oh, max effort kind of to get where you want to go. Mm-hmm. But through that process and particularly afterwards, as you said, you can sort of bring a deeper awareness and in terms of even injury prevention uh, or mitigation, you can auto-regulate better and notice maybe on that last set where, which I have done so many times with deadlifts or strength work where I've gone, oh, there's not much juice in the tank today or you're a bit frazzled, particularly the nervous system. If I'm feeling a bit shaky or like heightened, I won't go, I won't try and max out because there's not much capacity there and and it's just respecting the organism. Uh, And I wouldn't have that if it wasn't for the awareness built through sitting and yoga practices. Mm, and that's really hard to do sometimes because you know when you got a program and it's like do this you're like i really want to do this so i really want to do more than what i did before right oh yeah guilty <laughs> yeah so sometimes yeah sometimes i reach a stage at points where i'm like aware of what's happening in my body as well but you are trying to walk away from it as well because what it's telling you isn't what you want yeah and this is a this is probably a really controversial part of of any practice particularly in the movement world is it's like do i respect that and stop or do i push Mm. and in both occasions and this is where nuance and complexity comes in i've proved myself wrong in some (laughs) occasions where i've i've like stopped and gone i could have gone more or oh no that was really good but some occasions i've pushed through more often than not pushed through and actually been okay Mm. and so it's like well what do i do and it's sometimes it's just a case of luck but I generally only push through when I know I've got uh, a good momentum behind me, you know, like a couple of weeks or as I do this more and more, there's more of a capacity for that. (laughs) Yeah. Because, you know, you are striving to reach a higher potential, right? And the potential means like this whole new unknown zone that you haven't stepped into before as well. And so that is going to be uncomfortable as well. So it's like, at what point do you stop and go, okay, that was, like too uncomfortable <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's not doing me well uh, versus like, ah, oh, you know, this, this is to be, or not to, to be expected, but this is necessary for the process. Yeah. Big time. It's um, and I think that's probably where a really smart coach or, or training group or friend can be of assistance because it's been conversations with like people like that, like Derek or Harry or like Harry in particular was always like, you know, push hard up. It's his like kind of mantra for hand balancing <laughs> training. Uh, and he's right. Um, but sometimes, you know, you push too hard and sometimes he's wrong, but, um, mm. but that's cool. Most of the time he's right. But it, I think it comes back to something Derek and I've talked about a lot is this patience, like, and Yochim was really good at saying that as well. Like you have rest days, like, it's not a linear journey to gaining whatever skill or capacity you're looking for. So mm. just chill. And, and I mean, I've, I've been trying to do middle splits for over a year and a half. I've been, I'm hand balancing for ages, but 
I'm only 26, nearly 27. There's plenty mm-hmm. of time. If mm-hmm. I respect my body over the long term um, and take that more patient approach, then I'm, I'm going to hopefully be the Steve Maxwell in the future mm. and also avoid injury in the short term. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's always like that, right? They're like, if you just keep there for the long term, I mean, that's what you see at the end result, right? Like some of these guys, like, you know, I had Paul on the... um podcast the the other day and it's like, oh he's so good it's like seven years in you know um so you know that, that's a long time it is a long time mm. he's a really admirable practitioner actually um he's helped me a bit with some um hand balancing work uh and people like him i think are, are people we should pay attention to the longer someone's in the game the more respect they have like my teacher's been practicing yoga for what nearly 30 years and like I go on Zen retreat with him and I watch him do, you know, like scorpion handstands and flipping over and deep back bends where he's catching his heels. And this man is 48. Um, and, and he's like fine. And I've seen pictures of his teacher who's like 82 doing a handstand, this Japanese man. So I think if we bring some interoceptive capacity and wisdom to our practice, we can, really bring in that longevity which is probably cooler than getting a stolder in six weeks <laughs> <laughs> also that would be cool pretty cool as well. that would be cool i am trying to do that but um, <laughs> I'll, I'll wait <laughs> um so you know yogic physio i guess when someone comes to you how do you describe what's going to happen what do you teach oh cool um when someone comes to see me i i just try and shut up and listen um as, as long and as much as i can so I, I just get a context and often it takes a while. So if I know someone or have a bit of a relationship with them already, it's really easy because they can divulge parts of their life that are often crucial to understanding what's happening. Mm-hmm. But for others, it's just about sitting and guiding that process so I can get that as, um, you know, as, as soon as possible, because then it's about taking the biggest picture possible to getting them back to doing what they love mm. um, as quickly and appropriately as possible. So it's about listening um, primarily and understanding, then it's about, um, going, right, well, how did it happen? What are the causative factors? And it's always a complex scenario. Mm. Then it's about collaborating and trying to bring out the wisdom in the person, uh, but also like meeting with my, I guess, expertise and knowledge to build a plan together. Um, and this is where I really prefer the coaching process rather than sort of being the mechanic. Yep. You know, I can yep. do hands-on therapy and stuff. There's no worries about that, but I'm under no illusion that I'm fixing anyone because that doesn't work. Um, mm. And in dynamic systems theory, like any sort of input like that in the short term is not going to change. So we just develop a plan together and then and then you um, work over a, a period of however long to get them back to doing what they love. Um, and that's, that's such a fun process, um, enjoyable process. Because to see someone, like even just last year, I had like a teenage boy who was told all this silly nonsense about his knees being done, his neck being done. And I gave him that message of resilience. And sometimes it's not always this easy. In fact, most of the time it's not. But slowly got it, got the idea across to him that he was a lot more resilient than he thought, um, that he could do what he wanted, get back to playing soccer and coaching and running long distance. And it just took a bit of strength work because really he was just having a sensitized area because of uh, um, a lack of capacity. Uh, and so we build that up and now he's back to doing what he loves and he doesn't, you know, I haven't seen him in like seven months. Amazing stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. So 
with um, the work that you're doing, is it normally just quite rehabilitative or is it um, some coaching as well for people not in pain as well? Yeah, yeah, I do. I do like doing some coaching work and it, it depends on the person. So um, locally, I've done a bit of that and have the option for people online if they want it for both coaching and guidance if with their ashtanga practice if that's what they're doing or general yoga practice but also mm. the movement worlds because i feel like both those worlds need more of that mm. um more rehabilitative coaching there's plenty of good movement coaches uh <laughs> and so that that option's offered both locally on the gold coast which happens more often and then also online mm-hmm. and then yeah i've got appointments uh where we spend like a full hour going through uh, that process mentioned before and getting a plan together, um, which can happen via like video conferencing or I'm, um, just about to start up a, a new spot practicing in Southport here in the Gold Coast. Uh, very exciting. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you mentioned something, I think that was really important before, which is like, you know, that, that mechanic first, the coach, right. And, you know, so, so often it's like, you know, you, you go to that session, you feel good, but it's really like, you got to work with someone, for for a bit of a while right before you can retrain those patterns out from whatever you develop to get yourself out of um out of pain or the situation that you that you've got yourself in big time yeah and it's a hard process to sell because you know it can often be a costly one um mm. and and commitment to i mean commitment to any process is probably a struggle for our generation so it's just <laughs> yeah <laughs> and like i i've been I, i'm just as guilty as anyone else like try and get a physio to see a physio like (laughs) Um, but but yeah it's just uh it's just knowing and and sometimes people just want some of that you know more short-term work but as long as they as long as they realize there's long-term work to be done and Mm. and that they're cool to do that i mean ideally i put myself out of the job and they're they know the process and they commit to it and Mm. i only see people um as long as they need to um, Mm. which is as little as as we can do hopefully and for you know like the future of yoga physio um you know as, as a business or yourself like where do you mm. want to take where do you want to take it where is it going to head so at the moment um there's, there's a course it's sort of in three fold three aspects there's uh rehabilitation um consults um, both virtually and in person depending on the where the person is and what they want and then there's education and and sort of and training and coaching on the other two pillars where i'm creating coursework at the moment um a six-week course to be released later this year where people in the movement and pt worlds that train others particularly can upskill themselves on all of this rehab and pain stuff and get really up to date Mm. with the best evidence we have and um put themselves ahead of probably most physios out there and knowing how to best work with people. And then um, I also, with the educations, am starting uh, with a friend and, and my girlfriend here on the coast, st- uh, starting a yoga teacher training course, a long-term one, uh, Jala Yoga is the company working with Molly Cox. And we're creating a 350-hour program where it's a long-term three-trimester, nine-month process on the Gold Coast for yoga teachers or yoga practitioners who want to teach but want to be better equipped and stand out in the crowd so that you're not just every other yoga teacher, which says, you know, there's a dime a dozen, right? There's so many. And I I am, was one of them, but be able to understand and traverse the medical kind of biomedical world 
mm-hmm. and, and the yoga worlds and, and be of service to more people and also just be more skillful, be more trauma informed, be more, mm-hmm. you know, evidence uh, informed when it comes to pain and injury and movement mm-hmm. and then um, hopefully teach yoga in a, in a better way and get rid of some of the bad cred we've got for ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that sounds really exciting, man. And, um, you know, especially that course that you mentioned, I think that would, that, that's that's sounding like a really helpful resource because yeah like i said as well like uh you know i find that the pain and the injury uh event is like so common to so many people right um Mm. especially ones that are seeking those answers and i think just about anyone seeking help where you end up coaching as well they've got they've got something wrong or or they're they're labeling something that's going wrong with their body right you never come across somebody who's just like you know i'm perfect (laughs) <laughs> exactly yeah We're, we've all got some kind of yeah labeling process happening for sure mm. so just for i guess all the listeners out there if they wanted to get in touch with you oliver like uh what's the best way to um contact for sure i mostly live on instagram so yogic physio y-o-g-i-c uh physio at instagram and then i've got my website which is just www.yogicphysio.com which you can book appointments in if you need um any help with your injury or pain Mm -hmm. and then just yeah have a chat with me over instagram if you have any questions like i'm happy just to just to chat with people about their injuries initially and see if i can help them Mm. um and then you can there's a couple of videos online. I've got like a hip mobility one just for people to use freely and then keep an eye out uh, for the course later this year. I'm really excited for it. Yeah, definitely. I'll, uh, I'll definitely be looking out for that one as well. And I'll include all those details in the show notes. So Thanks, yeah, for man. anyone interested, interested, um, yeah, ch- check him out. Um, so yeah, just, uh, yeah, I guess it's in conclusion, Oliver, unless you have, do you have anything else that you'd like to share? Otherwise, yeah, I've really gained a lot at, from this conversation. I think <laughs> we covered like so many different areas. So yeah, it's um, good, man. Thank I, you for inviting me. I really like chatting with you. Yeah. Yeah. I've, um, I've really enjoyed it. Um, and, you know, I think even some of the areas that we touched on, you know, even just lightly, we could probably re- return for another, another chat to, to go in a bit deeper. For sure, man. That's it for today, guys. Thanks for sticking around all the way to the very end. Thanks to Oliver for sitting down and having that chat. Remember, if you have any questions, just hit me up on Instagram. It's at Fayon P, at P-H-A-O-N-P, and you can send me a message there. Thanks, guys.